we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Pierre Bergeron, a judge on Ohio's first district court of appeals. Prior to being elected to the court in 2018, he was an attorney with Squire Patton Boggs, where he chaired the Appellate and Supreme Court Practice Group and argued two cases before the United States Supreme Court. Judge Bergeron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I thought we could start with uh, something really basic, but I think something maybe people don't really have necessarily all that good of an idea of, and that's exactly what it is you do as an appellate judge, and also maybe any misconceptions people might have about that job and even more generally kind of the role of appellate courts in the judicial system? Well, I think that's a great question, a great place to start with, because um, most non-lawyers have a perspective of the court system that is that is centered on the trial court, because that's what you see on TV if you're watching some sort of legal drama. Or if you're watching the news and you hear about a high-profile case, it's all going to be focused on the trial court. Very rarely is there much um, coverage of what happens at the appellate courts unless you get to the U.S. Supreme Court level, obviously. And so one of my colleagues calls um, you know, our appellate court the mystery court because a lot of people don't, don't understand what we do. Um, but it's, it's pretty simple at the end of the day, which is... In Ohio, you have an appeal as of right in virtually every case that's at the trial level court. And our court has general jurisdiction. So if you have a, a civil case um, in common police court or municipal court, if you're a criminal uh, defendant, you've been convicted in um, municipal or, or common police court, or if it's a case in juvenile court or domestic relations, maybe a divorce proceeding, or probate. You have a dispute about a will, um, or, or you have a relative who died and you're trying to sell the estate and there's a dispute about it. Basically, anytime you're not happy with the result, the final result reached by the trial court, you can appeal up to us. And we hear cases with three judge panels, um, so we have to... Uh, reach agreement, at least with two of us, uh, to, to have, a, have an opinion uh, be released. And what's important as well is that 
we are generally, for probably over 95% of the cases, the court of last resort, because you can appeal our decisions to the Ohio Supreme Court, uh, but it's discretionary jurisdiction, so they don't have to take the case. They only take maybe 3 to 5% of cases um, a, a year. Um, so our court is really the, uh, the last stop for most litigants, um, and we are the ones kind of setting precedent at least for Hamilton County, because uh, we're a single county district. So, so that's kind of that's kind of how we operate, and and you know we hear all sorts of cases. It, it runs the gamut. I really find that um, you know exciting and interesting because I get something different every single day. And you know that there are a lot of differences clearly in the basic structure between most state courts and the federal court system, which I think a lot of folks are maybe a little bit more familiar with. But one big difference, uh, really important difference, is that state judges in uh, a lot, most most all states are actually elected as opposed to appointed. In 21 states, including Ohio, they are selected in nonpartisan elections. There are 18 states that have partisan elections. And then there are actually some states, seven, that uh, the public doesn't get that direct say, and judges are usually kind of go, are appointed in that sort of federal model, basically, with the executive appointing them. And so you're somebody who's run in and won, uh, not, that, not too long ago, a nonpartisan judicial election. So I wanted to get your take on what you think about that method, the method that you know, that ended up in Ohio, as opposed to partisan elections, as well as executive appointment, kind of the strengths and weaknesses, pros and cons, that sort of thing. Sure. So this is an issue I've, I've thought about a lot, um, both before I decided to seek election and then, then obviously reflecting back on the experience. And what I've concluded is, if you look at the array of um, different options out there, as you mentioned, you know, partisan election, nonpartisan election, gubernatorial appointment, or the federal system where you have lifetime appointments, I've concluded there's no optimal system. Um, there are flaws kind of embedded in each selection process. I think, you know, what I would like to see, I think what most people like to see is an apolitical process, a process that is designed to select judges based on their merit and their experience and, you know, their ability to uh, handle this really difficult responsibility. Um, but, but, you know, we live in reality and reality is that that's often not possible. And, you know, one of the, I think, problems on the federal system with the appointment and the, the lifetime appointment is there's is there's no ultimate accountability for the judges who are selected. They get on the bench and I mean they can be impeached, but that that has happened, you know, like twice in our history. Um and so but but the virtue is they are they're independent. Like they don't answer to anyone. And whereas on the state side, we are in, in the states where you have election, like Ohio, we are very accountable. Like, I know that in two years, I'm going to go face the voters again. And I'm accountable to those voters. But that level of accountability detracts in some respect from the independence, because we all know that we um, are, may you know, not be reelected. 
And you, you have to kind of accept that possibility um, when you run. And I try to function as if I am independent um, and not worry about the consequences um, because I think that's what, what judges should do. But, it, but it's difficult. Like you, you understand when you have like a high profile case that lands on your desk, like someone's going to be really unhappy with the result here. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and so um, you're aware of that. And I think um, for some judges like that, that's more significant um, than, than for others. So I, I think my takeaway is um, th- these systems are not um, eliminating politics from the selection process. And in fact, I think in, in, in this day and age, um, they are becoming more and more un- infused in the selection or election uh, process. But one of the things I found kind of most surprising and enjoyable about the campaign experience was just really connecting with voters who had never met a judge before, never met a judicial candidate before, and having kind of interactions with them talking about, like, what does our court do? Uh, what, what do you know about the legal system? What are your concerns about the legal system? And having those kind of one-on-one conversations that I would never have had if I'd just been appointed to the position. So there's, there's certainly trade-offs. Do you think, I mean, the states are almost evenly split between uh, partisan and nonpartisan elections. And as I mentioned, Ohio's one of the 21 that has nonpartisan elections. And some people say, well, they're they're nonpartisan, but I mean, it's not like the parties don't send out a, a gazillion mailers letting you know sort of who their people are, right, in some sense. And so do you think that's an important distinction still or maybe not so much? I would say not so much anymore because I feel like the parties are very active and engaged, even in nonpartisan elections. Um, in Ohio, they just changed the law uh, for Court of Appeals and Supreme Court candidates that you now have D or R next to your name on the ballot. Um, so we're we're moving to a a fully partisan um, election system. And this will be the first 22 will be the first cycle where that happens. So I'm curious to see how, if, if anything that impacts, um, the, the results, but, you know, one of the challenges for lay people, meaning non-lawyers is evaluating judicial candidates, because if you go online and you were to look at my campaign website and look at my opponent's campaign website, it's really hard to differentiate. And so I think for some people, like having that partisan ID is very helpful. Um, it, it comes with baggage, right? But, but I think that is one way to help people understand who they're voting for. Um, but, but there's a lot of reasons why, as I mentioned, that maybe that's not the optimal way to do it either. I, I want to move on to a, a, a sort of a substantive policy issue that a lot of courts are dealing with, uh, state courts are dealing with these days in the wake of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, because now it's up to the states to make their own determinations, uh, you know, concerning abortion. And so just like in the U.S. Constitution, most states do not in their state constitutions have a specific right to abortion, but 
a lot of them do have rights to privacy, personal autonomy, that sort of thing. And so uh, now the state courts have been sort of thrown into this because how they interpret these provisions matters a whole lot. And, you know, this is uh, an issue in in Ohio, like in a lot of other states, certainly. And so I I wanted to get your take uh, just kind of in general, because I know that if there are cases that might come before you, you can't comment on them. But just generally how you sort of see this this playing out and, and the role of the state courts in, in this uh, in this abortion issue in, in the post-Dobbs era. So I, I teach a state constitutional law class at the University of Cincinnati's Law School. And what I've been saying uh, for the last three or four years is we're going to see a significant shift in individual rights type litigation from the federal courts to the state courts as the U.S. Supreme Court does what I was predicting it would do. And Dobbs has kind of validated um, at least part of my prediction um, by, uh, you know, overruling Roe and saying there is no right to abortion under the U.S. Constitution. So what people should appreciate is the federal constitution provides the floor of rights. Um, a state is free to give you more rights than the, than are provided under the U.S. Constitution. And you can do that in your constitution. You can do it by statute, however you want to do it. And so the shift in litigation on abortion is going to be occasioned by parties trying to find recognition under their state's constitution of the right to abortion. And I can give you an illustration of this. Um, in Kansas, in 2019, uh, the Kansas Supreme Court handed down a decision that recognized the constitutional right to an abortion under the Kansas Constitution um, in Kansas. Now, in 2019, Roe was still in the books, so that decision really didn't make a whole lot of waves because it was just saying, like, you have this right under the Kansas Constitution, but you also have that right under the U.S. Constitution. But then you fast forward three years to Dobbs, and suddenly that floor falls, the federal constitutional floor falls, whereas the Kansas Supreme Court decision is still there. And if you recall earlier this year, uh, there was a ballot initiative in Kansas um, put on by uh, the the, um, pro-life forces trying to essentially overrule that Kansas Supreme Court decision. And they did not succeed in that. The ballot initiative failed. And so the consequence of this is you do have a right in Kansas to an abortion under the Kansas Constitution. Now, how this is going to play out in other states across the country, like, I don't know, like, that's that's what remains to be seen. But I think that this point is also much larger than abortion, because if you see the direction the U.S. Supreme Court is going, like Roe is not going to be the only significant right that will fall in the foreseeable future. Now, I don't know what the next one is, um, and I'm not going to make predictions on that. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I think that um, this is where people who feel very strongly about certain rights are starting to look at their state constitutions, at their state Supreme Courts, and saying, 
man, we, we may want to make sure this right is protected under our state constitution um, if something happens at the U.S. Supreme Court. And, and state constitutions, unlike the U.S. Constitution, in many instances are actually considerably easier to amend. Uh, uh, the U.S. Constitution process is uh, famously difficult to amend, and so that, that opens up certain avenues for, for activists, certainly. And I think just more generally, it seems to me at least that people have a lot more familiarity, familiarity, I can speak, with their the U.S. Constitution than with their state constitution. I, I wanted to get your take on that as well. Do you feel like there's maybe a general lack of appreciation of the importance of, of state constitutions relative to the U.S. Constitution in, in, terms, of, uh, in terms of rights and well, a bunch of other things as well, I guess? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is so bad that most lawyers probably have never even read their state's constitution. And, you know, we are not taught in, um, in high school, in our civics class, we're not taught about our state constitutions. We're not taught in college about state constitutions in any form or fashion. And we're not even taught in law school as lawyers about state constitutions. I mean, the class I'm teaching at UC is aberrational. There's like, 20 or 25 uh, state constitutional classes across the country. So this isn't like a core part of the curriculum for law school. And so you have, you know, lawyers coming out of law school, not having any familiarity with their state constitution. And we see that manifested in how, um, how lawyers litigate individual rights cases because they lean on the U.S. Constitution and the precedent under the U.S. Constitution because that's what they're familiar with. And if they look in their states and they see like, well, there's not a whole lot of precedent on this clause, um, you know, like, I, I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just going to go use the, the precedent from the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, but I think that that is an issue that people are kind of finally starting to wake up to. And starting to think more strategically about, well, hey, if I want to get a right recognized under my state constitution, like, how do I go about that? And I look at the, I look at the text here. Maybe there's a little bit of precedent. Like, how do I craft a, a compelling argument in, in this respect? But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a problem that people aren't aware of it. And um, I think... You know, people are now starting to wake up to it. And I see like in my newsfeed, you know, every other day, some article about like, hey, state constitutions are really important. State Supreme Court's are really important. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I, I think it's starting to kind of seep into to public consciousness a little bit. You know, on and this applies not just to the abortion issue, but a lot of other policy issues is uh, a lot of times when you look at, say, I'll use abortion as an example. You don't find specific rights, but you find statements about bodily integrity and things like that. And and this is true with a lot of legislation. It's oftentimes sort of vague. And this is a, a really common theme. Listeners know that Jay and I talk about this again and again, that the our argument is that the judicial system is asked to do basically 
more than we think it should because legislatures in many cases aren't very clear in their legislative wording. And that's maybe because they can't get agreement on specific wording, or if you want to be more cynical, that they just want the courts to kind of bail them out or blame them, right, if things go for or against them. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on on that. Well, I agree with with what you said. Um, I, I do feel like the other branches lean too heavily on the courts and try to kind of force us to decide matters that maybe they should be deciding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, look at Congress, look at the legislature in whatever state that you're in, and, you know, they're probably not doing a whole lot. And yet there are critical issues that people really want resolved, but but kind of the the knee jerk reaction now is well let's just file a case in court and get the court to decide it, rather than like let's subject this to the rigors of the legislative process because either that's too much work the other side won't agree you know whatever the the rationale is, and so it it puts us as the court system at the epicenter of a lot of kind of challenging cases and in some respects like that's what we're there for um but in other respects like we shouldn't be the policymakers. we shouldn't be um having to decide issues that you know the other branches could could sort out if they you know roll up their sleeves and did it so i do think that's part of the issue in terms of like when i look at the modern judiciary and like what are some of the problems we're facing? Like, I think that's one of them because it then puts us in the middle of political battles. And then people say, well, the judges ruled this way or that way because it was politically motivated. And, and then like the public starts to see us as, as political actors, which diminishes Kind of the respect, respect, and integrity for the judiciary that that um, that I think is really important. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that that's certainly an issue that that I'm um, pretty sensitive to. And you know, this gets to a point I try to impress on students when we talk about the judiciary is that ruling on cases is not this sort of mechanical kind of thing where you just say, well, what does the law say? What does the Constitution say? This is either, you know, right or wrong. Uh, And so, I mean, there's a lot of inherent subjectivity in this. And of course, legislation that's vague just increases that level of difficulty for for you and and other judges who are being asked to, to rule on these things. Yeah, and I think one of um, one of the issues I've been looking at recently is um, how we use these interpretive methodologies, whether that's originalism, textualism, living constitutionalism, all these isms, and we we use those to um, say like, well, this result is ordained by this interpretive methodology. And, and part of the reason for that is we want to make it look like judges don't have subjectivity, right? That, that like, well, th- these aren't um, actors who are making decisions based on whatever their background or, or um, uh, kind of professional upbringing is. Um, they're just relying on this methodology. But I think that's really mistaken because 
we're not robots. <laughs> and unless we just want to like say, well, this is the interpretive methodology, let's plug it in a, an algorithm and it'll spit out the results. At the end of the day, there are some really hard decisions. And those decisions um, are going to be decided by the judges who are just doing their best to try to sort through whatever the issue is. And there's no way to eliminate judicial discretion in those instances, because in my view, it's not as if there is one true answer in every single case that's decreed from the legal heavens, right? There are some cases where perfectly reasonable judges or justices can reach different results. And we need to acknowledge that and say, okay, well, if, if you reach a result different than me, that doesn't mean that you're illegitimate or that your reasoning is illegitimate, which I think is the danger when we wrap ourselves in these isms. And, and then oftentimes the argument is like, well, how could you get to that result? Like, I get to this result applying this ism that I've sworn fidelity to, and that's not, you know, you're doing something different. It's illegitimate. I think that's where it, it it gets, again, dangerous from the perspective of are we are we just um, facing each other on the terms of what is the legal question for us or are we make it into something bigger than it needs to be? So I want to I want to move on to an issue that I know is uh, near and dear to your your heart and something that's really fundamental to the judicial system is that's the right to a jury trial. Um, now, the Sixth Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution guarantees the right to a jury trial in criminal cases. The Seventh Amendment, the uh, same thing in civil cases, at least if the value of the controversy exceeds $20, and that's usually the case. Uh, but, you know, I think most people in, in, in hearing that assume that this means that pretty much in any case they can get things heard by an impartial jury of their peers. And you can, of course, waive that right uh, by pleading guilty or, or requesting a bench trial, trial, but it's your call. Except in the real world, that's not exactly how it works out. And I want to point out a dissent of yours from 2021 in, in which you write, uh, no right is so venerated and yet simultaneously undermined as a constitutional right to a jury trial. The opinions on this subject invoke majestic prose and ringing oratory to describe the right immediately before they chip away at its foundation. If we keep going down this path, we risk relegating a fundamental constitutional guarantee into a historical footnote. That, that's a, I like that. It's a pretty bold statement. So I wanted you to talk about maybe how you reach this conclusion about jury trials and your concerns about the, them. Yeah. So. Um... I I always knew that there really weren't a whole lot of jury trials from my experience as a lawyer, um, but but when I shifted roles to being a judge, you have a little bit broader perspective. And what I realized was roughly um, across the nation, only one percent of cases each year actually go to a jury trial. And I think that's something the public's not aware of um, because. If you're just a general member of the public and you're looking at your news feeds, you might see a high-profile trial. Um, and there's plenty that have been in the news recently. Uh, you might see a high-profile trial in your community. And so it gives the illusion that, like, these jury trials are happening. 
And there are some happening. There's no dispute about that. But it's roughly 1% of the cases. And when you start peeling back the layers of the onion and trying to understand, like, well, how did this happen? Um, and, and this ties into the quote that, that you read. Um, when, when I read a lot of the d- decisions from the Ohio Supreme Court on this topic on the right to jury trial, like, they all start with these quotes to Jefferson and, you know, the founders about, like, the fundamental importance of the jury right. But then they pivot and they say, but that right's not absolute. And then they, as I said, they chip away at his foundation. They say, well, in this case, we're not going to recognize the right to a jury trial. In this case, um, we're going to place limits on the right to a jury trial. And, you know, these decisions occurred over a course of uh, decades. But when I sat down and read them all back to back to back, you just, you see what's happening, which is, we as the judiciary really supposed to be the guardians of the jury right. And yet we have allowed it to be eroded and there's strong forces kind of what I call the elitist critique pushing back against the jury that says like, Oh, the jury is, um, you know, they're uneducated and not sophisticated. They're prone to emotion. Like they're not going to uh, understand complicated disputes. And like, we, we don't want them deciding these cases. I mean, that, that critique has been there since the dawn of the Republic. But over the last maybe century plus, um, legislatures, judges, um, executive branch have all really pushed against the jury trial to, to uh, undermine its vitality. And the jury, uh, one of my friend Suja Thomas, who's a law professor at, at Illinois, she, she wrote this article that called the jury the forgotten branch. And she argues that it, sh- it should be recognized as a co-equal branch of government. And the jury was designed to be a check against the other branches of government. Where, where I kind of disagree a little bit with, with Suja's point is that the jury was never given the tools, the institutional tools to be an effective branch. It was supposed to check the other branches, but it has no, you know, it has no lobbying arm. It has no bureaucracy at its command. It's just 12 people from the community who, when they decide the case, they, they go home back to the community. And, and so when the legislative branch chips away at the foundation of the jury, the court's the only one that can stop that. And across, across time, the courts have not proven effective at stopping those intrusions on the jury right. And, I mean, I could talk about this for days, but basically that's part of how you get to um, modern litigation with only 1% of cases going to trial. And you know, this affects both civil litigation and criminal litigation. Like, we would not have mass incarceration on the scale that we have it if there was tons of jury trials because it's just not practical. But if everyone pleads, then, well, then you can have that. You know, I wanted to ask you about that because I think some people would say, well, 1%, that's actually, that's actually not a bad thing because, my gosh, the, the, the resources we would need to put into our 
judicial system to be able to handle, say, I don't know, even maybe 20 percent going, that would just that would just be uh, impossible to even conceive. And so therefore, this is just a much more efficient way to administer justice. And I, I, I'm pretty sure you have you have you would take issue with that, right? Yeah, well, I talked to one of my friends who's a federal trial judge, and I said, hey, what, what would happen if suddenly you had a 20% increase in jury trials? And he just laughed and said, <laughs> like, the whole system would grind to a halt. And I think that, that the system is presently designed probably would grind to a halt in that circumstance. But, but the reason for that is because it was designed, <laughs> it's been designed over time to force settlement or pleas. And it's not designed to support jury trials. And, and that's why I think a lot of the modern trial judges kind of feel like they're, they're kind of case administrators, right? Um, there, was, there was an article I read where this uh, federal judge got appointed and in four years he'd had a single jury trial. Wow. And he was like, I, I thought I was, I, I was going to have all these trials and it never happens. And so, you know, and this is not something that you, you, you know, you just go and snap your fingers at one thing and then like suddenly there's a bunch of jury trials. Like it's really multifaceted and there are so many reforms that are beneficial in some respects, but they're also um, detrimental to the jury trial. So in arbitration is a good example. Uh, arbitration is where you sign a contract and say, well, we'll have a private arbitrator decide a dispute if one arises. Um, like that's good for a lot of people. It's good for a lot of businesses who uh, want to pick a specific type of arbitrator like healthcare that has experience in that. But, but in the run of the mill case, um, when you click a box on uh, whatever you're buying online, you agree to arbitration. And then you have a dispute with the company, like, does that make sense? Like, I mean, these are the, the kind of issues um, that would need to get rolled back a little bit to reinvigorate the jury trial. And it seems to me it would also maybe be at least potentially a, uh, a need to increase the number of courts, the number of judges just to be able to handle the, the sheer volume of things, uh, would, would you think that would be part of that s solution, if you would? Probably. Um, I think that you're already, even without that, I, I think what you see uh, federally, there was just a proposal to add a number of uh, several dozen um, trial judges because of the volumes on the federal side. I know various states uh, from time to time are making proposals to add judges. Um, I don't think that adding judges is uh, the only thing that would need to be done. Um, and I'm not saying that like, oh, we need now a new army of judges out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, we need to increase our, our, our courts, you know, fivefold or something. Um, because I think it's really looking back at what are some of the structural issues that are causing there not to be jury trials. And could we do this a little bit more efficiently and, and set up a, a scenario in which it's easier to get to a jury trial? We don't have to be in litigation for two years, you know, consuming the judge's time uh, during that process um, just to settle it at the end of the day. 
like there are there are ways that wouldn't necessarily correlate to the need for additional judicial resources but yeah at some level there would need to be some additional judicial resources but there there does need to be anyway yeah on this issue in terms of thinking about how it might come to pass some people say well state legislatures can can you know pass legislation strengthening that right to a jury trial but but another approach might be to say and this gets a little bit into the weeds is that well, you know, we do have a Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and uh, the the Supreme Court over the years, since the 14th Amendment was was passed in 1868, they've incorporated a number of uh, the uh, protections in the Bill of Rights, most of them, in fact, which just basically means uh, making them apply to the states as well. And so some people might say, well, why doesn't the Supreme Court just rule that the Seventh Amendment actually applies to the states? And then, boom, it wouldn't be an issue. The state courts wouldn't be able to say, well, no, you don't have this right to a jury trial because they could say, well, it's right there in the Constitution and the Supreme Court has spoken. What do you think about that sort of uh, overreaching, uh, overarching sort of approach as opposed to kind of a state by state type of uh, approach to this? Yeah, so I don't think that would really matter at the end of the day, because virtually every state um, in its constitution protects the right to a jury trial. So if you overlay the Seventh Amendment, um, it's not really going to move the needle in terms of jury trials. I think the, the, the broader problem is notwithstanding the constitutional protection, there are all of these um, efforts to, to minimize uh, and undermine the jury trial that courts have held our constitution. So I, I think it's really going back to, to some first principles and saying like, well, you know, A, is that decision correct? Um, and, and B, assuming that it's correct, like how can we, um, how can we, effectuate some reforms that would translate into um, greater accessibility to juries uh, rather than uh, lesser accessibility to juries. And I mean, this, again, like there's a number of different facets of this, um, but but ultimately, um, I don't think it's a real constitutional um, dilemma because the courts have have found a lot of these these measures to pass constitutional muster. I, w- I want to move on to another issue that I know is also of particular concern to you. Uh, back in December of 2020, you co-authored an article in The Atlantic with Ohio Supreme Court Justice Michael Donnelly, who, by the way, has also been on the podcast not, not that long ago, on the issue of the lack of good data in the criminal justice system. And I'll make sure there's a link to that article in the show notes. I would definitely encourage listeners to check it out. It's a pretty interesting article. But uh, what just in general do you see as the problem here? I mean, what sort of data do you believe is lacking and why is this uh, a big issue? Well, virtually any kind of meaningful data um, on the criminal justice system in Ohio um, is not accessible. It's not accessible to the public. It's not accessible to the judges and the courts. And that might be pretty mind-blowing to people who are not connected with the justice system. But Ohio is not unique on that. I mean, if you look around the states, there are very few states who have 
access to meaningful data. So the question, first of all, is why? And part of the answer to that is we all have um, antiquated case management systems that were not designed to extract data from, right? They were designed to input data into, um, to make sure the trains are moving on time, the cases are flowing, stuff like that. But they weren't designed to extract data from. So if you wanted to know a benchmark, like whether that is what's the average bail imposed for this offense in this jurisdiction, or what is the sentence, um, what is the average sentence for this offense, like you could go manually in and look at every single record and calculate that, but that would take forever. And you're not able to extract that from the existing systems. But it's more complicated than that because the system that we have in Hamilton County is not compatible with the systems in our neighboring counties or anywhere else in the state because they're all designed for the specific county. So they're not compatible with other systems. They, they can't really speak with each other. And more significantly, we keep different data than other counties. Like we all, like there's not a uniform standard that says like you must keep all of these metrics on each case. So we keep whatever we've historically kept. Other counties keep whatever they've kept. But there's, there's no uniformity in that. We're, we're moving towards that. That's, that's another, another topic. But, um, but that's part of the reason like why it's very difficult to get meaningful data from the court system. And, and I feel like that's a real impediment to just basic good governance, right? Like you, you wouldn't go to a, a, a doctor that didn't keep scrupulous tabs on what treatments were proving effective or not effective. And if you had a business and you didn't keep track of um, how many widgets you're selling or what your profit margin is, you probably wouldn't be in business very long. So like there's a wealth of things that we could do if we had the data. But the first step is like, we need to get that data. We need to get access to that data. Um, so that we can then look at other, like, how do we, the, the next question would be, how do we use that? Because it seemed to me that I, I just always assumed that, let's say I was an attorney or, or you know, representing somebody or a client and I was accused of something and sentenced. I just assumed that I could say, well, let's take a look at how that stacks up to everyone else in the last 10 years or whatever has been sentenced to that. And then I could make a case as to whether or not the sentence that was imposed was out of line or not. And you're saying, nope, that's just, it's all just sort of not possible. Basically you can do a little bit, but any kind of, any kind of comprehensive thing would just be ridiculous in terms of the amount of time and effort. And I would think, especially if you're say a very strapped public defender or someone without a lot of resources, that's just not work you're going to be able to do. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and Ohio in particular has um, really, really wide ranges on sentencing. Uh, I've got a case before me right now where the sentence range, the permissible sentence range that the judge could have imposed goes from six years to 70 years. Wow. So think about that from the perspective of judicial discretion. Like you could sentence this guy anywhere in 
that range. And, and to your point, like with ranges that wide, and that's not every case, but, but enough cases with really wide uh, parameters there, wouldn't you want to know, like, well, yeah. how, are, how are my colleagues doing that? How are other judges in the state doing it? And it doesn't mean that you have to follow what they're, what they're doing, but it, it helps you understand, like, what, is, what does an average case look like? Is this better than the average case? Is it worse than the average case? Are there aggravating or mitigating circumstances? Um, but without that, like, the judges are just you know, free to, to do whatever they feel in their discretion they should do. And, and that ends up with really widely disparate sentences. Well, you know, I, I think some people would say the answer to that is to have really clear and specific sentencing guidelines to make it not six to 70 years, but the, if you commit this crime, you're going away for X years, that sort of thing. But it seems to me that that is a solution, uh, so to speak, that creates its own potential problems, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what the federal sentencing guidelines were designed to do. And, and there's a lot of critiques of those. Um, but ultimately, uh, I think what federal trial judges would say is, like this really ties our hands in a lot of cases. Like if we see a case where um, there's a lot of mitigating circumstances and I don't, I don't think the guy should get that long, but there's a, there's a statutory minimum. So I've got to sentence him to that level or the guideline says I have to go in this range or if not, like I might, you know, get reverse on appeal. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it there's not, I'm not sure what the perfect system is from like a sentencing regime, but but I feel like if you're going to have uh, wide variances in the permissible sentences, like part of the check on that is letting people know like how are similar criminal defendants being treated. And the legislature told us. Uh, I don't know, this is like 20 years ago, like we want you to sentence people consistently with uh, people who've committed similar offenses. But then we don't have the tools. Yeah, to do yeah, that, right. right? <laughs> it's great idea. But like, how do we actually do that? And that's where the data uh, ultimately will come in. Do, do you think I mean, I, I see this. I'm, I'm trying to think about this as a, a, a technology resource issue. And I'm wondering how how much this is kind of a resource constraints problem, because I think a lot of a state legislature, state governments are, of course, pretty strapped as it is. And they're thinking maybe as well, you know, this isn't really a high priority item and things seem to be working more or less OK. And so we're not going to devote resources to this when we have other more pressing things. And I think you would you would probably uh, disagree with that to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that's of critical importance to just the overall administration of justice, not just on the criminal side, but on the civil side, um, understanding what our operations are and how we can improve them, how we can make the court system better, more efficient, like everybody should be in favor of that. Uh, but in Ohio, the Supreme Court has uh, commissioned a a the creation of a statewide sensing database. So that is that is ultimately in process. That obviously does require resources. 
those have been, at least for the initial stage of it, preliminarily uh, allocated. Um, but I think that beyond the resources, there are a lot of judges who are resistant to this. And I think that their resistance stems largely from, I don't know how this is going to make me look. Sure. <laughs> this, could make, this could make me look bad. Yeah. And, it, you know, tying back into what we were talking about earlier, we're all elected. And if this data comes out and I look bad, maybe I don't get reelected. And I guess, you know, I hear that. I understand that concern. But at the end of the day, like we, we, it is our job to make the system the best that it can be for the citizens of Ohio. And, and I just don't feel like we can do that without access to the data. And if the data made me look bad, if, if it revealed a blind spot to me, like I'd want to fix that. I'd want to say like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this was a problem in what I was doing. And so I'm going to commit to, to resolving that. And I think that that's what, that's how we as a, a court system need to look at it. But, but, you know, my view is not um, unanimously embraced. Yeah. Them, so. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can appreciate that because as a, as a college professor who gets student evaluations, I know there are some folks who would say, oh, I just don't even want to see them because, well, you know, they're going to say some things I don't want to hear. So yeah, it's a, it's a similar thing. <laughs> Stakes a little bit lower, uh, lower in my case, certainly, but, you know, right, right. but I think it's also important to point out, and this is something that I think a lot of people may not necessarily appreciate is that while federal laws and federal judges get so much more of the the press and, and, and the media attention, it most of the time, the laws that most directly affect people's lives and when they're going to court or perhaps being sentenced to something, this is going to be under state law. And so state courts in, in, in many ways are really far more important to people's everyday lives than federal courts. Well, I agree with that, but I'm also a state court judge. Yeah. So that that <laughs> might sound like a, a, a PSA for state courts <laughs> coming from me. But um, statistically, 95, I believe it's about 95% of cases um, nationwide are in state courts. So federal courts have only about 5% of cases. So from that perspective, if, if, you, if your life is going to be directly impacted by a court, it's more likely to be a state court. And, you know, the federal side has better data than we do, um, but they have a much smaller pool at the end of the day. And, and they have a, uh, even though there's different districts and everything, like they have a more uniform system uh, than we do, um, even within states. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think people have the perception that like the most significant cases go to the federal court. Um, and, and certainly a lot of them, a lot of them do, but, but as I said at the outset, like I think a lot of the significant rights related cases are going to be shifting to state court and you run of the mill criminal case, you run of the mill breach contract case or tort case, like, um, or, or divorce case, like those are all going to state court. And yeah, and that's just what I wanted to point out to folks is that sort of the irony of it, right, is that the the, the system that, that takes up the 
vast bulk of cases that are never going to reach federal courts. And when there might be is- issues with unfairness or injustice, well, if we, we don't have the data there, it's, it's great that the federal courts are maybe doing a better job of it, but that's such a small percentage of things. And so that's, I just wanted to emphasize the importance of this. And of course, it's not just an Ohio issue. Uh, it, many states are in even less good positions than Ohio on, uh, on this issue. Yeah, there's a group, um, if anyone's interested, Measures for Justice, that kind of looks at the national um, national trends in this and, and will highlight different states on their website that, and give examples of states that are, that are doing things well. And it's actually a really good resource for states that are trying to do better because they can they can learn from others' experiences and, and see, like, uh, you know, we've talked to various um, um, court systems from other states and said, like, you know, what were the challenges you faced? Like, how did you get around those? How did you get buy-in from all of your um, constituencies for something like this? And what, you know, what would you wish you knew if you were in our position? So, like, that's, that's a good uh, portal for uh, for for us as a court system to uh, reach out to as a resource, but really for the public too to look at look at those and say like, wow, like I like that. Uh, I would like our court system to have something like that, and and maybe I'm going to lobby someone for that. Um, and 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 I guess part of that, and I'll make sure we put a link up to Measures for Justice in the show notes. But it seems to me that part of the problem might be is that. Is it's not this isn't necessarily an issue that a lot of people even realize is an issue and how, you know, legislative change tends to work is you need to get a you need to get a a group of people, a large enough group of people, influ- influential enough group of people uh, worked up enough about something to kind of push change. And, and one of the frustrations of this must be that while there are some people like like you, uh, like Judge Donnelly, who are very interested in this, we need more people, I would imagine, to really push this forward in, in a big way. Well, that's absolutely uh, a critical component of this, and and I think it was two thousand one. The Ohio Supreme Court um, had a task force on um, racial justice, looking at racial justice in the court system, and they produced this really impressive, like eighty page report. And a key component of that was a request and plea, really, for a statewide sentencing database, and it talked about all the reasons why this would be beneficial. But the problem with that was, like, it's a great report. It makes a very compelling case. But then, like, as best I can tell, it just went in people's desk drawers (laughs) and did not lead to a statewide sensing database. Because 20 years later, we're still um, trying to start this effort. And I think it goes back to, is the public aware of this? And the the public doesn't know that there's not data. The public assumes that there's data. I mean, when I got to to my court um, after I was elected, I'm like, okay, I I haven't seen data on the state side, but now that I'm kind of behind the veil, I'd like to see the data. And everyone just looked at me like I had two heads. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. And and so like getting public um, awareness of this and interest behind it is really critical, but, you know, ultimately they're going to be the beneficiaries of a better system if we, if we have this data. So I, I'm doing what I can to, to publicize that and 
talking with folks, uh, anyone who is interested in that, I'm always happy to, to chat about it um, just to try to build some broader awareness of it. So I want to, I know we're running uh, a little bit long, but I want to end on sort of a big picture question. Uh, you know, there are a lot of folks who are very concerned about just the overall state of the judicial system. You take a look at public trust in, in, in courts and the Supreme Court and other courts as well, just really all time lows. And, and, and it just seems like there's at least to some people real issues with that. And so I wanted to get your take. I mean, I, are these sort of concerns overstated or are there reasons for optim optimism? I always try to end on an optimistic note. So I guess my question is sort of what is your greatest concern and what maybe are you the most optimistic about or what can we be optimistic about? Well, I definitely share the concern and I think that it's, it's well documented that uh, public trust in the court system is, is de decreasing. And I think that all of us in the judiciary and the court system need to be cognizant of that. And we need to ask, you know, what can we do within our little sphere that can help? I mean, we can't control whatever SCOTUS does, right? We, we have no control over that. But we do have control within, say, Hamilton County for, for my court. And I think my reason for optimism is some of the things we've been talking about, like data initiatives, increasing jury trials, um, things like that, I feel like the people that I've been talking to are getting the message and are interested in some of these reforms. And I think some of them can really help uh, reinvigorate trust in our judiciary. And I think the other reason I have to be optimistic is looking at a lot of the newer judges, um, both here locally and, and nationwide that I've met, um, and, and court administrators and court staff who are really, really dedicated to how do we make our court system better? How do we make it a fairer court system, more efficient, more accessible, transparent court system? And I feel like if that's our guiding light, um, we, it, it's not going to be easy. Uh, we're going to have stumbles along the way, um, but we are going to move the court system in a positive direction. And that's not going to change public perception overnight. But when, when people start to see what we're doing, start to internalize um, the good that is coming from the court system, like I think that's going to help at the end of the day. So I think that's what that's what keeps me excited and energetic, and it's it's why I um, try to devote time to some of these initiatives um, and doing what I can from my perspective to help move them along. Well, on, on that optimistic note, we will close. And uh, Judge Pierre Bergeron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity and, and enjoy the conversation. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview, and if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. 
If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.